Hi, Bodia. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. So I grew up in Chicago in the Hyde Park community. So I think it was made um, perhaps most famous by Barack Obama. Like that's where he he lived in, in Chicago. Uh, but but we were there long before Barack Obama got there. So my my grandparents actually. Um, migrated to to Hyde Park in the 1940s. So it's, it's where I grew up and uh, where my mom grew up and, and so forth. So yeah, that's, that's where I grew up. Um, it's really interesting because I have actually very few recollections of what I ate between the ages of, um, I guess, between when I was born and, and nine years old. And I was thinking about that, like, what did I eat in those years? And it's so interesting because my parents got divorced when I was nine. And I literally cannot remember <laughs> uh, the foods I ate prior to that. Um, I don't have a recollection of what my mother cooked um, during that time. But after that, uh, we, we moved in with my grandmother once once they divorced. And I remember so many of those meals. Um and it's, I guess, a cliche, but my grandmother was an amazing cook. And my favorite food was okra. <laughs> <laughs> One of the few people who's really attracted to, like, I guess, the slimy texture of okra. <laughs> so um, I really loved okra. I, I really loved, um, she would make these wonderful Parker House rolls uh, that I used to smear with a ton of butter and grape jelly mm-hmm. and desserts, of course. So um, I think five flavored pound cake was my favorite. And uh, interestingly, my, my aunt, who was also living with my grandmother at that time, um, she was and is a naturopath. And so she would take me to the health food store and buy me all kinds of treats. And my favorite ones were the carob covered raisins Mm -hmm. and the root beer sodas that were clear because they weren't (laughs) uh they didn't have like the artificial coloring so uh they tasted just like root beer so those are my favorite things to eat uh growing up wow I love whenever carob comes up in a conversation (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was really you know uh well I should say I but my aunt was was really an early adopter of carob (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just very very specific, and it's of a very specific time, and I love that. And uh, yeah, I, I I'm always saying, you know, we should bring Carob back. I I don't think it was um I don't think it was as bad as people remember at all. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, I I actually don't like chocolate. Mm. Yeah, I'm not really a chocolate eater. Never have been. Um, but Carob was like my jam as a kid. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, you know, why was it important for you to include a chapter on food in, in your new book, Afro Nostalgia? Sure. You know, I didn't really think that I could write a book about nostalgia and blackness and get away with not writing a chapter about food, about food or um, some reference to food. I think, you know, food and music are such key touchstones of nostalgic memory. So you hear something and you get transported back to 
a moment in time or you eat something and it has the capacity to take you back to um, a, a particular kind of memory or a set of memories. Um, so, you know, that's a really personal, I think, relationship between food and memory and nostalgia plays such an important role in that. Um, though in the book, I wanted to go a little bit beyond just kind of the personal nostalgic relationship that we have with food and really think about how it plays out in the Black culinary space. So showing how chefs can play really important roles in evoking memories of this, you know, imagined historical past um, and how those are really kind of tied to a certain kind of politics, but also a sense of, you know, the future of Black food. Right. And, you know, you note in this chapter the complicated space of food studies. And I wanted to see if you could elaborate on what you meet, define as food studies and why you see it as a complicated space. Sure. Um, you know, food studies is very broad, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I think it's really complicated. And as I understand it, at least, it's really about exploring the relationship between food and identity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and you can approach that from so many different angles. So you have public health or environmental sustainability or literature and folklore or sociology. I mean, all of those areas can really speak to um, the relationship or a certain kind of relationship between um, food and, and identity. So, and I think just because it's so vast and it's so nebulous and it's also, you know, a really, a fairly new field, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, it, that's one of the reasons why I think it's, it's really complicated. Um, it, it's funny. I was listening to um, Eve Ewing and I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she's, yeah, amazing sociologist, writer, speaker, poet. I mean, just, brilliant um, individual. And she did a little Instagram live mini talk. <laughs> um, and it was so fascinating because she talked about the notion of pre-existing health conditions, right? And how that's being played out right now in the uh, trial of Derek Chauvin and um, being used as an attempt to prove that George Floyd's body was already broken, right? That there were kind of pre-existing health conditions at play. And, you know, we've also heard a lot of that around COVID, right? Especially when it, it comes to communities of color. But when we think about something like pre-existing health conditions, you know, so, so much of that is tied to issues like poverty, and food access and food deserts and food justice. Um, and these aren't natural conditions, but they're, you know, the product of a myriad of social injustices. And I think food plays a really important role in that. So, um, so yeah, so there are many reasons why I think it's a, it's a complicated space. There's so many conversations happening about food and food ways. Um, there's so much to say. And I think for me, at least when I was writing the book and just doing some reading around this, it was really hard to try to find a way in, yeah. <laughs> especially as someone who's coming to this work from a very different vantage point. Um, 
And that's probably why this chapter on food was was the most personal for me, um, because I actually used my own food memories as a way to participate in what I saw was a really kind of expansive conversation. Right. I mean, it's funny because I, I started reading a book this morning published in 2003, and the writer, who I think was a philosophy professor uh, named Lisa Helke, she was saying, you know, it's in the last 10 years that food studies has emerged a little bit. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, boy. I was like, oh, it and it instills such a fractured, uh, yeah. you know, area of study. And I think part of it is that nostalgia connection that it it is you have to come into it from a personal perspective. And, you know, yeah. you're talking about you using your memories. She begins this book as well with her own memories. And I'm like, yeah. I don't think you can get into food without connecting it to nostalgia, connecting it back to your own identity, which is such a fascinating, um, yeah, that's why it's so wonderful when other people write about food, you know, like, I'm a food writer, so I only write about food, really, but (laughs) that's why I love reading other people write about it, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, my background, you know, obviously is as a literary scholar, mm -hmm. right, so I mean, I write about a lot of things, but I usually write about books, <laughs> so, um, but I do eat a lot and I read about eating and I read a lot about food. And so, um, yeah, I, again, I could not really figure out how to situate myself in this conversation without delving into the personal. But I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why that chapter for me, at least, was one of the most rewarding to write as well. Of course. And, you know, the lack of pork in your home growing up is part of that, Mm -hmm. um, as well as the focus on Dick Gregory and Bryant Terry, who are, Mm -hmm. you know, big parts of this chapter. So I wanted to ask, because I, you know, I always ask people about this, but, you know, what is your relationship to meat as an omnivore, you know, and I know you don't eat fast food, you know, that seems like uh, an interesting, you know, kind of relationship to to food as as omnivore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. Again, I guess going back to, you know, thinking about how your memories of food or your relationship to food is really um, formed, I think, at such a young age, or at least for me, it's formed at such a young age. Um, And until you pose that question, I have to say, I had actually never really thought about my relationship to meat. I was like, do me and meat really have a relationship? But I guess we do because, you know, I, I do consume it. Um, what's really interesting is that in high school, my mom and my stepdad stopped eating red meat, but I didn't. I still eat red meat. <laughs> um, my my husband does not eat red meat at all, mm-hmm. um, but I do and our kids do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I'm honest, I'd have to say that I think my relationship to meat really is the result of having had such a restrictive diet mm-hmm. as a child. Um, so growing up in the nation of Islam, and then also on top of that, I had a lot of food allergies, wow. which I have now outgrown, <laughs> thankfully. Um, so, it, you know, if I'm honest, maybe my unwillingness to not uh, eat meat is, pushing back on what I perceive to be a really confining way to live uh, for a good part of my kind of growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and and honestly, 
you know, I, I don't know if I reject quote unquote fast food. <laughs> I, I definitely preach the gospel of moderation, right? And I think if you, if you want a fast food meal every now and then, you know, get after it, right? Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll share with you a really striking memory um, when I took my kids to this art fair in Chicago and they were about, you know, ages around eight to 11 at the time. And I got them popsicles and the popsicles were made from fresh fruit, but they weren't like unsweetened or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was still obviously sugar present. Right. And both of them said that, you know, their popsicles didn't taste right. And I was like, what's going on with these popsicles? So I tasted the popsicles and you know, they tasted like the fruit that they were labeled as, right? So the strawberry popsicle tasted like strawberries. The mango popsicle tasted like mango. But they were so um, used to that kind of artificial strawberry flavor and like an artificial citrus flavor that um, the recognition or the kind of expectation of having a popsicle that was the flavor of the actual fruit was something so foreign to them. Mm -hmm. And that was quite frankly, heartbreaking for me. Right. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, we're, 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 we're going to do some things differently here. So I think, you know, when I'm thinking about the kind of choices that we make as a family, you know, I don't want them to, feel as though or understand that natural foods in their natural form are something that's foreign. Like I want them to at least be able to recognize that the foreign thing is the (laughs) actual foreign uh, or the artificial thing that you're eating. Right. Right. So I think that's why um, at least for us, fast food isn't, you know, a, um, we don't, we don't do that on a regular basis. I'll say. Right. Yeah, no, and it, it's always interesting to talk to, you know, parents about this because you, you have to, like, negotiate food in a whole new way um, right. and figure out how to how to pass on your relationship to it without, you know, making that the whole thing and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's always interesting. I, I, th- I asked because you mentioned, you know, your kids asking for fast food in that chapter. And I, I was like, you know, it's, it's always interesting to understand how people, yeah, make negotiate those those aspects of life because yeah (laughs) well you know it's and I think that what I've tried to do also is not make them feel guilty about having it right because then that is a whole other thing and I have I talk a little bit about this in the book but you know I had a lot of shame around food growing up and that's never a healthy (laughs) relationship to, to anything um so I don't want them to feel like if they're out with their friends and, you know, the, the choice is to, they're, they're both teenagers now. So, um, and the choice is to go to McDonald's or, or whatever, that they have to feel bad about doing it or they have to lie and tell me that they went somewhere else or something <laughs> like that. Um, but I, I do want them to be able to strike a balance. Of course, of course. And yeah. Yeah, in the chapter, you also write that, you know, Bryant Terry's Afro-Vegan is about making tangible and accessible the relationship between food and emancipatory politics. You know, Mm -hmm. in what kind of ways and venues do you see this relationship being made nowadays in culture broadly, if you do? Because, I mean, I think that's such an important intersection of of food Mm -hmm. and emancipatory politics. And I've talked to Bryant Terry about this before. 
Um, but also, like, I, I, you know, just as you are a literary scholar, you know, how do you see that um, manifesting? And and because I also want to understand how food um, for non food focused people, you know, where you see it and where you see it as important. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, I just think that right now we see it kind of everywhere, right? So, you know, in the aftermath of the summer of 2020, where we saw, you know, national racial unrest and second wave of Black Lives Matter, you know, the notion of, you know, Black radicalism and imagining Black freedom I don't know if it's it's been more visible, to, to be frank. Um, so it, it certainly is more visible now than even when I was writing the book, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm thinking about even, you know, renewed attention to Black cultural creators, you know, and um, I, I'd be remiss not to mention folks like, you know, Therese Nelson and her Black Culinary History Project, um, also the work of Cynthia Greenlee at the counter, mm-hmm. Um, anti-racist projects happening everywhere, even, you know, in popular culture. Oddly enough, I just saw the the first episode of the new season of Top Chef last week. (laughs) And and something that I was immediately struck by was, I don't know if I want to call it an eagerness, but it kind of felt like an eagerness to really put, you know, West African cuisine on display. And that was something that was really fascinating to me. And you know, I think it would be easy to kind of critique that as like, oh, this is empty symbolism and what does this really mean? Um, but I also think like the restaurant industry, like so many different industries, faced a rec- racial reckoning in that moment. And it's clear that a lot of um, a lot of folks, at least to my mind, are seem to be trying to do things a little differently. Um, so you know, I, I see this relationship between um, food and, you know, kind of a politics of liberation, honestly operating in, in so many different spaces, musically, in terms of literature, in terms of um, obviously food. Um, but certainly, you know, I think in, in the kind of popular cultural sphere, um, we're seeing a little bit more of that conversation come to the fore. Um, and I think it's a direct result of, again, the events of, of summer 2020. Um, and I, I think it can be really easy to see these endeavors as merely historical, mm-hmm. right? Um, but in the book, I talk a lot about this notion of nostalgic reclamation or nostalgia as an act of reclamation, right? So what are you reclaiming? What are you trying to kind of get back to? And I think, you know, it's really a a way to imagine the past, right? It's a particular kind of memory, Um, but it also does a lot of work for us in the present and provides a good deal of options of inspiration for the future, which I think is really at the heart of nostalgic projects. So, you know, I, I see that, see it all over the place. It's interesting. There's, I was talking about High Park earlier where I grew up and there's a new ish restaurant there, um, Virtue and the, the chef is Eric Williams. And, you know, even if you go on the site, you know, he, he has these kind of archival 
images of the American Black South, you know, on, on the website and really kind of pointing to that space and that time as a, um, you know, a mode of inspiration for what he's doing in, in, in the restaurant now. Um, but I would say that it's not just kind of trying to recapture that very moment or the cuisine from that very moment in that space, but it's about kind of using that as a starting point to create something anew, mm-hmm. um, but also really not forgetting, you know, the foundation of, of where all this came from. Right. And, you know, in the chapter as well, I mean, to talk about restaurants, you know, you discuss Marcus Samuelson's Red Rooster and specifically Sam Sifton's review of it. And, you know, you bring up the difficult role that a restaurant has, you know, in changing its neighborhood, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a black restaurant in a historically black neighborhood in Harlem. And, you know, how do you see the restaurant as having a duty to occupy a role that is not simply about gastronomy, you know, a, a role that actually kind of is in service to the neighborhood and in in kind of anti-service to gentrification. Um, yes. You know, like, <laughs> I think this year also we've been talking a lot about, you know, what is the role of the restaurant, especially because in the pandemic, you know, they've been laying people off, you know, it's right. been a, a site of, of transmission. Um, you know, line cooks have been, you know, deeply impacted by the pandemic so like we're talking about you know what is the restaurant and so you know do you think the restaurant has a cultural function beyond you know being kind of just a business that's a showcase for a chef you know especially kind of in that context of of red rooster that's a great question i mean you know i have to say (laughs) normally i get really nervous when i hear words like duty and responsibility especially like attached to like roles that black people are supposed to play (laughs) but but i will say and i am definitely just by the way anti-gentrification just so everyone knows but um that's it i would say that you know honestly when when a restaurant or any business for that matter you know occupies a space within a neighborhood especially you know neighborhoods that have been neglected that have been forgotten marginalized you know there really has to be to my mind, at least, some sense of responsibility for how your presence in that community is going to affect the lives of the people who existed there long before you, right? So I I do feel like there is some responsibility there. Um, And the reason why I even talked about Red Rooster in the book is because it's it really does exemplify how complicated nostalgic projects are, right? So... You know, on the one hand, nostalgia is a feel-good emotion, which is really what the book is about, right? So it has the capacity to be energizing, it can be life-giving, it could be comforting, you know, and even in the name, Red Rooster is obviously an homage to, you know, the Red Rooster of the Harlem Renaissance era, right? So, you know, you kind of think about that moment and the kind of um, images that it evokes of like this, you know, vibrant you know, Black Harlem, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, nostalgia also has a really dark underbelly. Yeah. And it's one that is, you know, often informed by um, historical erasure mm-hmm. and violence, right? So with Red Rooster, we see a little bit of both sides of nostalgia at play. <laughs> and I see it as a space that's really grappling with that. So, um 
you know, that's that's one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to kind of focus on it because it it obviously even in its name invokes this kind of historical relationship. Um, but we have to think about you know the work that it's actually doing in in that particular community right now. Right. You know, in terms of <clears throat> whether re- restaurants have a cultural function, you know. I would obviously say yes, right? I'm not sure if restaurants, though, always know that they have that function and um, if they're aware of of what that function is and what role that they play in it. So when I think about a restaurant, I think about things like, you know, again, not as a person like entrenched in like the food space, but location, menu items, price points, wait staff, seating arrangements, decor, music. I mean, I think about all the things that go into, you know, the the making of a restaurant and it is such a an overtly political space, mm-hmm. right? Um I, I was thinking about a time when a few friends and I went to brunch in this neighborhood, Wicker Park, um, which is a bit of a, you know, Tony, predominantly white neighborhood in in Chicago. And my friends and I were the only Black patrons in the restaurant. And if anyone knows Chicago, you know, we are a um, deeply segregated city, right? So you go to the North side, it's mostly white, South side, mostly Black. so we're, we're in Wicker Park, we're having brunch, you know, at this restaurant, only black people there. Um, and this Biggie song comes on <laughs> the the loudspeaker, you know, and it's a restaurant, so it's still somewhat muted, but you know, you know, Biggie, you hear the song. <laughs> and it's the explicit version. Mm. And the N word is like all over the place in the song, right? So here we are in the space, the, the patrons, are mostly white. The wait staff is mostly white. You know, the cooks look to be, you know, mostly black in that next. And, you know, I was thinking in that moment about how our experience of the space in that moment was very, very different. Right. right? Um, so restaurants are not neutral spaces. Um, I think that some of them seem to intend to operate Mm -hmm. from a place of neutrality without recognizing that for many people, you know, whiteness functions as a neutral, right? right? So, um, so I, I think that restaurants would do well to think more deeply, um, about the, the cultural functions that they serve and, um, the roles that they play in the communities in which they exist. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think I asked that question, of course, out of interest, but also, you know, I'm I'm writing a list of restaurants in San Juan, like uh, for a, a food website, you know, like the essential restaurants of San Juan. And mm-hmm. like, you know, thinking about that, these questions of, you know, these areas that have been so deeply gentrified and, and here in San Juan, you know, gentrification is tied to Airbnbs. It's not necessarily tied to actual residents because the... the mm-hmm the the economy is so based on tourism and so thinking about you know who is this restaurant for who is this serving um and and how is it changing the neighborhood is is just such an important consideration um 
and 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 yeah that that idea of like who who is comfortable in these spaces um is such a big one when it comes to food that i don't think people think about enough from like farmers markets to restaurants you know who is comfortable and who is being yeah. served yeah yeah exactly and um you know also you kind of think about the you know i imagine i, I guess i'm not a restaurant owner i don't aspire to be one but you know, I imagine, though, that you do have a vision of the space, and um, I honestly don't think that, especially in, in many of the spaces that I've been to, there is a, a good deal of consideration for um, the kind of diversity of people who potentially could um, occupy that space. And um, I think when you're coming into, especially again, particular kinds of neighborhoods, you really have to be mindful of the power mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that you wield um, within those spaces and also how your mere presence, again, can really alter um, not just the the lived experiences of the people who are there, but really the future Mm-hmm. of those communities right. um, in irreparable ways. Right. And for you, is cooking a political act? Okay, so I'm going to be the, the consummate academic here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that we do or say escapes the realm of the political. Yeah. So I, I would have to obviously put cooking in there. And, and can I just tell you how much I love this question? Because I, I thought about this and I'm like, it's cooking. It's not just food. It's not just eating, but it's the act of cooking. And right. so, um, yes, I, I would say that food is, I mean, that cooking is definitely a political act. And in as much as our politics are reflected in the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis, right? So am I going to get takeout or am I going to cook in my kitchen? Am I going to fry or am I going to bake? Am I doing the cooking or is my husband doing the cooking? And, you know, how these decisions get made, I think are, are inherently political. So I would have to say that cooking is very much a political act. Right. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for having me.